Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And these words that we just sang, they, they are full of wonder. Lord, there is no one in this world, no one in this universe who compares to you. And what a privilege it is that we have to worship you. And Lord, in our time together as we open your word today, I pray that you will fill our hearts with increasing awe and wonder of the glory of who you are. And that we will also receive the joy and the energy and the perseverance that we need to continue to faithfully walk with you through all the ups and the downs of our lives. So we pray that you will be at work in our midst right now as we open your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. We are currently in week two of the NFL season. And I know that many of us are excited about the Packers game tonight against the Vikings. And one of the things we recognize about the NFL is that every single game matters. Because frequently there is a razor-thin margin between the teams that make the playoffs versus those that go home early. And for teams like the Packers that have legitimate hopes to be in the Super Bowl Every game matters not only to make the playoffs, but also to try to secure home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Because in the NFL, having home field advantage makes a big difference. It is so much easier in the NFL, especially in the playoffs, to win at home than it is on the road. Because at home, you have the enthusiasm and the support of your crowd behind you. You have the familiar environment around you. And that can give you a sense of joy and perseverance and energy and excitement as you play the game. Now, transitioning the analogy to us as Christians, for many generations, Christians here in America have enjoyed home field advantage. American society down through the the generations in many ways has been very, very supportive of Christians and Christianity. But things are changing to the point where today, here in the 21st century, Christianity is not so much experiencing home field advantage in America any longer. And now Christians in many ways are viewed more as outsiders. Even recognizing the Christian heritage in our country, Christians who want to follow Christ faithfully recognize that we don't have home field advantage in the same way that we used to. There was a survey, a nationwide survey last year that asked uh, American adults this. They asked, okay, thinking about your faith, How do you feel in society today? I mean, in respect to your faith, how do you feel in society? And it's really interesting to look at the study, especially comparing the percentage of all adults and how they respond to these things versus the percentage of evangelicals. Evangelicals are those of us who who really are committed to following Christ faithfully, who value Scripture, who, who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And you look at this disparity between the average U.S. adult and then evangelicals. I mean, for um, evangelicals, 65% of evangelicals in the study say they feel misunderstood in the society because of their faith. Uh, 60% feel persecuted in some way. 53% feel marginalized. 48% feel kind of sidelined from the society. Or 50% feel silenced in the society when it comes to their faith. And you compare these to just the, the average adult. There's about 20 percentage points difference between evangelicals and the average adult in America. And many of us, as we look at these descriptions of misunderstood, persecuted, marginalized, sidelined, silenced, we can, we can probably identify with those feelings. And these are indicators 
of the seismic shifts that have been taking place in America to bring us to the point where we are today, where Christians don't have the same type of home field advantage as we used to. They can make us feel disoriented. But it raises an important question that we are digging into today, and the question is this. How do we stay faithful to Jesus when our society is pushing us away from him? How do we stay faithful to Jesus when our society is pushing us away from him? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapters 2 through 3 contains seven letters that Jesus sent to seven different ancient churches. And last week we looked at his letter to the church in a city called Ephesus. One of the main things that Jesus pointed out in that letter to the Ephesian church was that, you know what, you all are doing a lot of great things here. But you've abandoned the most important thing because your love for me, Jesus says, is growing cold. Your love for me is growing cold. So that was the theme of the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus. Now, if we were to look at a map of, of these seven cities that received these seven letters, um, you would see that they're written in an order that a messenger would follow in delivering these letters to the various cities. And so first of all came Ephesus. After Ephesus traveling about 35 miles up the coast, the messenger would come to the city of Smyrna. So today we're looking at Jesus' letter to this church in Smyrna. And before uh, we dig into the passage, I want to give a little bit of background about what Christians were facing there. Because Smyrna, it was a very prosperous city, but it was not an easy place for Christians to live. And there are a couple main reasons for this. One reason was what is known as the imperial cult. This is a term we don't use much today, but the imperial cult was simply this idea of worshiping the emperor and worshiping the Roman Empire. Now, this imperial cult was prominent throughout the Roman Empire, but Smyrna was known to be especially patriotic. For instance, back in 195 BC, there was a temple built in Smyrna called the Dea Roma. Now, we probably don't speak Latin here, but Dea Roma simply means the goddess Rome. And so this temple was set up in Smyrna, dedicated to worshiping the Roman Empire. may seem kind of odd to us today, but that's the type of culture that they lived in back then. Fast forward a couple centuries uh, to 25 AD. So this is during Jesus' lifetime. Um, Contemporary analogy for us. We're probably familiar with the process, at least in part, that cities go through to try to host the Olympic Games. I mean, cities that want to host the Olympics, they put together a bid, and they compete with one another for who's going to get the privilege of hosting the Olympics. And then the International Olympic Committee examines all the bids and awards the Olympic Games to one particular city. Now, that same thing took place around 25 AD because various cities throughout the Roman Empire were competing with one another for the right to build a temple to worship the emperor Tiberius. And the government awarded this right, this privilege, to Smyrna because they are such an incredibly patriotic city. And so Smyrna was able to build this temple to worship the emperor. And so this is a type of context in which these early Christians lived in Smyrna. And it was a context in which citizens were expected to sacrifice animals and to burn incense in worship of the emperor and of the Roman Empire. If someone refused to do that, they would be an outcast. It would be a sign of treason. 
Because everyone, if they wanted to participate in the public life of the city, had to, had to go along with this. And this put Christians in a difficult place. Because Christians, uh, if they were to worship the emperor of the Roman Empire, that would be idolatry. Christians there, if they wanted to be faithful to Christ, they were unwilling to call Caesar Lord because they understood that Jesus is the only true Lord whom they are to worship. And so they were in a very difficult position here, which led to a lot of challenges for them. And adding to the challenges were the Jewish people. There was a strong Jewish population there in Smyrna that despised Christians. Now, Jews, if they were to worship the emperor or the Roman Empire, that would also be idolatry for them. But they had a special exemption. Because in the Roman Empire, they were an officially recognized religion. So they were given an exemption where they still had to honor the emperor. But they didn't have to worship him. They were given an exemption. But Christians didn't have this exemption because Christianity was not an officially recognized religion in the empire. Now, early on, Christianity could kind of um, just float along in the coattails of Judaism uh, because the Romans thought Christianity was just kind of a branch of Judaism. But then in the later decades of that first century, there was more and more of a divide between Jews and Christians. And the Jews were very upset with the Christians. And so the Jews were all too happy to throw the Christians under the bus whenever they could. And these things kind of came together of this worship of the empire and the Jews getting upset at the Christians and trying to throw them under the bus. These things all came together to make Smyrna a very difficult place to live as a Christian. Christians in Smyrna definitely did not enjoy home field advantage. And so for us here in today's world, if, if you are someone who's experiencing opposition or ridicule or persecution because of your faith in Christ, whether it's at school or in your workplace or among your friends or in your family, this is a letter from Jesus that has incredible relevance for you. So I invite you to follow along now as I read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Jesus writes, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful. Even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now this letter begins in a similar way as all the other letters, giving a very vivid description of Jesus. Here it says that Jesus is the first and the last who died and came to life again. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But through this letter, uh, the main focus is on the afflictions, the, the sufferings, the persecution that these Christians in Smyrna were enduring. Jesus says, I know your afflictions. This is the main thing in this letter. And there are four different afflictions, four trials that the Christians in Smyrna were facing. One of the trials they were facing was poverty. Jesus says in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I mean, this is talking about the reality that Christians there were struggling financially. 
And it wasn't because they were lazy. It wasn't because they didn't have marketable skills. It was because they were social outcasts in that society. Odds are good it was hard for a lot of these Christians to find employment because of their faith in Christ. It's possible that that people who were loyal to the Roman Empire boycotted the Christians' businesses just because they didn't want Christians to be prospering. It's quite possible that, that people were even vandalizing or looting the shops that Christians ran there in the marketplace. And the Christians couldn't necessarily expect support from local authorities either. There's an interesting passage back in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is not written to the, the Christians in Smyrna, but I think it has a lot of relevance. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Now again, we don't know for sure if that was taking place in Smyrna, but it's something that definitely could have been happening where the Christian's property could have been confiscated, especially because, you know what, they could have been guilty of treason against the Roman Empire for not worshiping the emperor. But it says here that you joyfully accepted this because you recognize that you have better and lasting possessions. We see, for instance, back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So what Jesus is saying here is, you know what, you Christians in Smyrna, even though you are struggling financially, even though you don't have a lot materially, you are rich spiritually. That's why he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. So one of the trials they were facing, nonetheless, even though they were rich spiritually, they were still facing the trial of of poverty materially because of their faith in Christ. On top of this, they were facing the trial of slander. Slander means that people are saying things about you that aren't true. They're they're ugly things. They're mean things. Uh, they're, They're dragging your name through the mud. They're making up false rumors and spreading them. And you know what? Slander would not be that big a deal if people didn't believe it or if they didn't like it. But there's something kind of sick and twisted about our our sinful nature. It can be easily enticed by slander where where somehow it makes us, you know, feel better about ourselves when we hear others who are being uh, torn down in some way. There's There's a lot in Proverbs about slander and gossip. One verse is chapter 26, verse 22, that say the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost part of our being. So it's this idea that when people hear gossip, they internalize it, it poisons their minds. And undoubtedly, as we've all experienced, it hurts us royally when people are spreading false rumors or gossip about us out of a spirit of bitterness or anger. I mean, it, it hurts. And that's what uh, the, the Christians there in Smyrna were experiencing. And the Jews there were the primary perpetrators of this slander. Jesus says, I know all about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He's calling these Jews a synagogue of Satan. Um, They are basically Satan's human agents to slander God's people. Remember in John 8, 44, Jesus describes Satan as the father of lies. 
And there are lies being spread around Smyrna about these Christians. I mean, that poisons people's minds. I mean, obviously it's hurting the Christians there in the midst of what they're going through. So they're facing poverty. They're facing slander. And Jesus, he's he's saying, you know what? It's not actually going to get easier for you. Verse 10, he says, Do not be afraid about what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Things aren't going to get easier, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Even though Jesus is always in control, it doesn't always mean that circumstances are going to immediately get better for us. These Christians in Smyrna, it was probably going to get harder. Because some of them, this is the third trial he points out, some of them would be put in a prison. And it says the devil is behind that. Devil, the devil is working through human agents to persecute God's people. That was true back then. It's still true today as well. We have a spiritual enemy who is fighting against God's people. Now on top of this, uh, jump ahead to verse 10. Jesus says, be faithful even to the point of death. That is a fourth trial that these Christians are probably facing. It is this reality of potential martyrdom, execution, because of their faith in Christ. Now, Christianity has been around for about 2,000 years. And we have to recognize that living here in the 21st century, there are many, many Christians who have gone before us. And among those Christians are men and women who died because of their faith in Christ. On one hand, we could be discouraged by that. But on the other hand, I think we can draw great encouragement from these men and women who are faithful to Christ to the end and who stood up for Christ even to the point of death. One of these people uh, lived back in the same era that we're just reading from in Revelation was a man named Polycarp. Funny name, but they had different names back then. But Polycarp, he lived in the city of Smyrna. There's a decent chance that he may have even been in, the, in that church in Smyrna when this letter from Jesus came. In his later years, he became the leader of the church in Smyrna. And uh, there was a major wave of persecution that swept through Smyrna um, around 155 AD. Polycarp, he was in his 80s at that point, so he would have been a much younger man um, in the time of the book of Revelation when it was written. But Polycarp, he was the leader of the church when this wave of persecution came through. And, and his church, his congregation urged him, you know what, go seek refuge outside the city. Polycarp said, no, I want to stay in the city. I'm, I'm not worried. I'm not afraid of what may come. And they finally convinced him, go seek refuge. So this man, Polycarp, in his 80s, he left the city. He sought refuge a little bit outside the city. But authorities tracked him down. Now, he didn't try to run. Instead, when the officers came to arrest him and take him back into the city, he offered them a meal. And then he asked if he could have a little bit of time to pray before they took him, and they granted him that. So, so the, the account, the ancient account, um, talks about how he went and prayed for two hours. And then they took him back to the city. But on the way, several of these officers were so impressed with this old man that they urged him to recant. They said to him, What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in offering incense? This is a part of worship, thus saving yourself. And the ancient account says that at first, Polycarp, he just kind of tried to ignore them. He didn't say anything, but they kept persisting and urging him to recant, to repent, to save his life. And so he finally said, I do not intend to do what you advise. 
When they finally got him to the city, they took him into a stadium, kind of like a coliseum of sorts. If you picture the movie Gladiator, if you're familiar with that movie, he's going into a place like that, like that big coliseum where they have all kinds of gladiator-type stuff where people are put to death as well. And he's standing there before the proconsul, who is the, the Roman official in charge of the whole thing. And the proconsul looks at this man, I mean, 80, 80 some years old, 86 to be exact, and the proconsul says to him, have respect for your age. Swear by the genius of Caesar. The genius of Caesar was an oath that you take of allegiance and worship uh, of the emperor. He said, repent, swear, and I will release you. Curse the Christ. Curse the Christ. What was Polycarp's response? Is he standing there in that stadium? He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 86 years he's done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme the king who saved me? The proconsul said, you know, I have wild beasts. If you don't repent, I will throw you to them. Polycarp said, okay, let them come. And and the, the proconsul wasn't super thrilled with his response there. So he said, okay. If you make light of the beasts, I will have you destroyed by fire unless you repent. Polycarp still refused. So the proconsul then had a herald go out into the midst of the stadium and proclaim three times to make it official. Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. At that point, a mob went out into the city, gathered wood, brought it in. The ancient account says the Jews gave themselves zealously to the work. It just points out the animosity right there. A fire was lit. Now it was, it was windy, and wind kind of drove the fire away a little bit from Polycarp, so it wasn't as effective in burning him as they wanted. And so finally they ended his life by the sword. Polycarp was dead. Jesus said, um, don't lose heart. Don't give up, even to the point of death. But you look at Polycarp. He, he's dead. He's been put to death for his faith. But he died with this sense of triumph. He said, 86 years I've served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When you see that Christ gave Polycarp the sense of determination, a sense of peace, even a sense of joy of being faithful to Christ to the end. I mean, no one ever said that following Jesus was going to be easy. I mean, Jesus actually promised in this world, you will have troubles, but take heart because I've overcome the world. But we still have to face that reality that as we're seeking to follow Christ faithfully, especially in the days world where we, where we no longer have home field advantage in this country, there are going to be people who push back. I think especially of students, those of you who are in middle school or high school, about how you know middle school and high school, it's, it's always been a hard phase of life. But now, especially if you want to follow Christ faithfully for middle school or high school, or it's so much harder than it's been for a long time here in America. Because there's so much pressure to compromise your values. You're, I mean, you're probably ridiculed at times or mocked, whether to your face or behind your back, because of your faith in Christ. It's not easy to follow Christ. And for this reason, it's easy, it's easy to want to compromise because we naturally want to please people. We want to be popular. But following Christ is not always popular. I mean, the same dynamics take place as we get older in our workplace and our families. 
that people wonder, what's up with you being so passionate about Christ? What changed? We have to face the fact that without home field advantage, many people will think we are strange if we want to follow Christ. But as we look back here at this passage, we see that Jesus gives us some beautiful truths that can fuel our joyful perseverance in following him. I want to point out four of these beautiful truths. One that can, that can encourage us, that can help us not just survive, but to really thrive in the midst of a challenging world is this recognition that Jesus is the glorious king. Back here in verse 8, Jesus says, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. This talks about how he is eternal, how he stands outside of time as the sovereign king. There is no one in the universe like him. I think of Philippians 2 that talks about after Jesus died, after he was resurrected, he was then exalted to heaven. He was given the name of, that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so you compare anyone who bullies us, anyone who is pushing us around, anyone who is speaking badly about us. I mean, that can be a big deal here on this earth. Do you compare them with Jesus, the glorious king? And they are nothing compared to him and his supremacy. And that can give us a sense of hope and a sense of confidence, even in the face of challenges and persecution, because we don't serve, we don't bow down to the people of this world We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So the truth that Jesus is the glorious king can fuel joyful perseverance for us. Also, we see this idea of how Jesus secured eternal life for us. The songs we've been singing this morning are focusing on Jesus' resurrection. He defeated death. And it says here in verse 8, Jesus died and came to life again. This can give us hope that no matter what happens to us on this earth, We have hope of what comes after this life. Jesus won the victory over sin and death, and he passes on that victory to us. What joy that can give us. In verse 11, it says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, the second death. The first death is the death we physically die here on this earth. The second death comes... At the judgment, at the ultimate judgment, at the end of time. And second death is talking about if we don't believe in Christ, if we don't trust in him and follow him, that second death is literally being sent to hell. But Jesus says, you know what, that second death, you don't have to fear that because there's no condemnation for those here in Christ Jesus because Jesus has secured eternal life for us when we place our faith in him. That can give us confidence to persevere through our challenges and trials. Thirdly, we see clearly here that Jesus knows and cares about our trials. He says in verse 9, I know your afflictions. I know about the slander that you're experiencing. Oftentimes when we're going through hardships in our lives, suffering, persecution, it can feel like we're so isolated, like we're kind of on an island by ourselves, like no one really knows, no one really cares. That's why it's so helpful at times if you're going through cancer, if you've lost a loved one, something like that, to be a part of a support group. And that's why in the adoption world, you know what, adoption isn't easy. The, the trauma that, that, that children experience when they're in an orphanage or a less than ideal home setting, it, it persists on through. That's why it's helpful like for my family to be able to have other adoptive families around us 
who, who not only know in their minds theoretically about the challenges, but really have experienced them themselves. And to have those people uh, around you to support you and to encourage you and say, yes, I know what you're going through. I, I have experienced that myself. I know it's hard. Let's keep going together. It's so encouraging to have people like that around us to support us. And that's who Jesus is as well. He says, I know your afflictions. I know about the slander. He knows what we are going through. It's not foreign to him. He's experienced that himself when he was on this earth. And he's intimately familiar with what we're going through even here and now. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And that can give us incredible encouragement amidst our challenges. And finally, we can receive joy in persevering because we see that Jesus will reward the faithful. Over in verse 10, it says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I'll give you life as your victor's crown. Earlier we referenced the Olympics. Now the Olympics originated in ancient Greece back during that era. There were games of various sorts, athletic competitions in a lot of these cities, such as Smyrna. And at the end of an, Olymp- at the end of an athletic competition, the person who won the victory would receive a crown. Kind of like a gold medal, but they would receive a crown. If you think back to the Olympics in Athens, the, 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 the victors would get not only a medal up on the, on the medal stand, but they would get a, a crown, a wreath. That, that's the ancient symbol of victory. Jesus says, if you overcome, if you are faithful to the end, I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now you think about these Olympic athletes. I mean, it, it's, it's so powerful to watch their joy and the release of emotions when they win. I mean, a lot of the Olympians that we just saw a few weeks ago, I mean, they have tears streaming down their face as they're standing up on the podium. And I think so much of that is because they've endured so much as they've gone through all the training, the hardship, the sacrifice. It's not been easy, but they've looked ahead to that goal of winning an Olympic medal. And when they receive it, it's so amazing. It's such a release. It's so joyous for them. But that joy, you know what? It's, it's kind of fleeting. Because a few weeks later, the rest of the world moves on. Well, they still have a medal to look at, but the joy can be fleeting. But this joy that we get from Christ, we look ahead. We go through hardships now, difficulties, persecutions. But we look ahead to standing before Christ. And we're not in it for an Olymp- or for athletic competition. It doesn't matter how athletic we are. What we are called to do is be faithful to Christ. And he says, then I will give you life as your victor's crown. Because we are not meant merely to survive through life. We're certainly not meant to compromise in order to make things easier. We're meant to thrive as we are following Christ. doesn't mean things will be easy. Because there are many things in this world that can suck the life and the joy out of us. But Jesus gives us the ability to persevere. He gives us the ability to persevere. I think of in the book of Acts. The apostles, they faced a lot of persecutions. Eleven of the twelve apostles were killed for their faith. The twelfth one, the apostle John, who wrote Revelation, he's writing it as he's in exile on an island called Patmos. But they faced a lot of persecution. And in chapter 5 of Acts, they are being persecuted by the Jewish leaders uh, in what's known as the Sanhedrin. And it says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. They left rejoicing. Yes, they had suffered. Yes, they had just been flogged. Yes, they had been ridiculed. But they were rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering 
for King Jesus. We have to recognize, yeah, we don't have home field advantage necessarily in this world. There will be people who push back on us. But the ultimate referee, the ultimate one who decides who wins, is no one in this world. It's King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he can help us to thrive and to persevere and to be faithful in the midst of all the challenges that we face in our lives. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to us. We do confess that we struggle at times with faithfulness. We, we struggle at times to, to, to persevere. We, we at times want to throw in the towel. We, we at times are, are tempted to compromise. Lord, I thank you that even in those times where we do give in to that temptation, that you are faithful and that you are gracious. And Lord, I pray that you will be at work in each one of our lives, helping us to cling to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you promise us this crown of life. We praise you because you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray that you will work in each one of our lives so that your opinion of us matters far more than anyone's opinion in this world. We thank you, Lord, that, that in this world that you give us what it takes to not only survive, but to truly thrive. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.